is, um, I think it's the Russian Orthodox Church that baptizes during Epiphany, um, which happens, Epiphany, um, which it's, it's just one of the kind of more Orthodox Church holidays. Um, Yeah, and so the Russians, I, I know I shared a photo of like, there was a, you know, kind of one of those great photos that you see from a new site, and it was this baptism happening in Russia during Epiphany, the third Sunday of the new season, which if you're in Russia in the third Sunday of the, of the new year, it's pretty cold, and so they, they literally cut a cross out of the ice in the lake, and they were baptizing people in this lake and it's this it's this I don't remember if it was a young woman or, or young man but just coming up out of the water and just the look of shock on their face is just you know I mean again it's it's part that one was part polar bear plunge part baptism so um yeah so so we're, let's talk about Jesus's baptism this morning and just a little highlight note just a little kind of side I, I've said this uh when I was doing this mountains in Matthew series where uh, Dale Bruner's work, and maybe you've seen me, I've posted a couple videos on the church Facebook of, of Bruner has like these little one minute. He has these volumes of commentary, been just so helpful. I'm going to lean on his his work, his exhaustive knowledge, um, expertise uh, for the next couple weeks. We're going to traverse, I think, through John as we look at the, as we look at the waters of, of the New Testament. Um, but what I want to do this morning is I want to read these baptism passages. So if somebody has a Bible and wants to look up the one in Matthew chapter 3, and that's verse 13 through 17, if someone could look that one up and read it. Um, and then if I could have another reader from Mark 1, 9 through 11. And then another reader, Luke 3, 21 through 23. And then one last reader for John 1, 32 through 34. Here's the passages. So, somebody start us off with the Matthew passage. Thank you. Uh, Mark 1, 9 through 11. Go, Brian.
And then Luke and John. Where's my Luke reader? Go ahead. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, and then the John passage. Yeah, just those couple of verses. So these are kind of the narratives, and, and we can kind of compile those together, maybe to get an accurate picture. John obviously doesn't, the book of John doesn't really necessarily talk about Jesus' baptism as we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but just kind of there's some, some kind of testimony that focuses a little bit more on, on John's baptism. Um, but the bookends of Jesus' ministry, this is important to note, right? The bookends of Jesus' ministry, Brian, I think you said um, at the end of Luke, it says, and Jesus begins his ministry when he was 30 years old, right? Um, it ends with Jesus dying on a cross between sinners, right? Jesus dies on a cross between sinners. The, the, Jesus' ministry begins um, among sinners in a river. Here we are in the Jordan River, um, and we were there just a couple weeks ago when we saw the Israelites crossing into the Promised Land. They were crossing through the Jordan. This was the passage when um, when the priests go into the water and they're holding the, um, they're holding the ark in the water and the water stops in the Jordan and all the Israelites cross over into the promised land. Jesus goes back to the Jordan River to be baptized. Now, the Bible doesn't say, and I, I haven't read anything that where Jesus is baptized is where they cross the water. I don't think there's any correlation there other than it's just the same river, right? Go ahead, Johnny. I think I need some water right now. Um, Robin, Rock and Robin should be in there. She could help you get some water inside. There should be some cups and some water in there, okay? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, Jesus' book ends, again, ends with on the cross between thieves, begins in the water um, among sinners and a river, right? All these people being baptized, all these people coming out to John. I want to look at three themes that we encounter as we think about Jesus' baptism and then also for baptism in general, this is, a, this, is, this is kind of one of the big ones for the Christian faith, right? Baptism. Um, between baptism and communion, these two ordinances, these are like kind of the must-dos. I don't know of any, I would say, Orthodox Christian faith that doesn't practice these two things together, right? Baptism and, and Eucharist. So let's look at these together. And here's the three words that I want to talk about this morning. Um, community, and then I want to talk about um, humility, and just because I'm a preacher and we think about these things in either alliterations or rhymes or whatnot, <laughs> I'm using the word finality. Uh, you could maybe also think consummation, um, you could think of, uh, yeah, 
So community, humility, and, and finality. So the communal aspect of Jesus's baptism happens uh, in, in two different ways. I would say that there's a horizontal community And then there's a vertical community, and that's with the Trinity. So the horizontal community starts with this word us. Um, If you look at Matthew chapter 3, and I think most of the morning I'll be in Matthew, although we'll jump over to John in a little bit. But if you look in Matthew chapter 3, Bruner Bruner made this note in his commentary. I thought this was really fascinating. So chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus speaks to John and he says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now that word right there, which Bruner made a note of, which I thought was so interesting. And again, you have this real kind of communal aspect of Jesus. At the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he says, John, you and I got to partner together on this thing, right? Jesus If anyone could have been a loner, if anybody could have done it all by himself, it would have been the Son of God. He doesn't. He's always partnering with other people. He's with other people. He's always working with other people, empowering them, uniting them. In In just a chapter, he's going to go call his disciples, right? He's going to go call these people who are his, his 12 disciples. And he's making a, real, a statement about the reality of the kingdom, is what I would say. I would say that the reality of the kingdom is cooperative and not isolated. It's us and not me. It's we and not I. What page are we on? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know exactly what page it is, but I'll turn it to you for you. Here, we're going to be in Matthew... In Matthew 3, okay? Right. New Testament. That way you can. There's a map too if you want to look at the map. Matthew 3, and we're going to be here in the, like right down here, okay? Okay. There you go, Johnny. <clears throat> um, the, the reality of the kingdom is this word right here it's us, it's, it's communal, it's together, it's cooperative. Uh, a couple, I don't know, year, month, Years, a year or years ago, we talked about sin. I always want to remind us that sin's primary power is division, is isolation, is separation, right? Sin will always try and split people apart. It will always try and divide people. It's what happens in the garden, right? As soon as sin enters, Adam and Eve turn on one another, right? So when Jesus begins his ministry by working along John, by working along the disciples, he's making a statement about the nature of the kingdom of God. Cooperative, not isolated, right? This is the life of Christ that we get to experience, right? Is that it's an us type of life. It's us working together with Jesus. His spirit comes alongside of us that we would work with him and do the sorts of things that are required in his kingdom. Um, let me see my kids, folks out there. Brian, Phil, uh, Isan. I'll share this. Uh, Phil, you, you probably could relate to this maybe the most at, at your stage of life. At my stage of life, perhaps one of my greatest joys is watching my little kids when they play together, right? And they, they get out their American Girl dolls. They get out their Calico Critters. They get out their 
whatever little toys, and they kind of come together in this imaginative little world, or they're in their backyard and they're doing dance team or whatever, and they're, and they're playing together. And as a father, I don't know if I feel much greater joy. You remember those days, Brian, when your two little kids would, would play together? Um, and I don't know if there's a much more maddening moment as a parent than what? <laughs> when they're arguing, right? The nature of the kingdom of God, it's why the Apostle Paul spends the whole time saying in the New Testament just trying to get people to get along, right? Different people, God's children trying to get along. Jesus begins at his ministry. John, it's proper for us to do this thing together, right? We have to work together. Now, the vertical piece is the Trinity, and you have, you have the Spirit, um, you have the Spirit as the dove, you have Jesus as the lamb, and you have the Father as the voice, right? So you have these three, um, these three folks happening here. Jesus as the lamb. Um, in John 1.29, just kind of before the passage that you read, right? John the Baptist says, look, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the lamb removes our major problem as we think about the Trinity working together here, right? Um, the lamb, let me, before I get to these guys, let me say one other thing about the Trinity. When we baptize, when we baptize, um, or when you've been baptized, I'm sure your, your pastor probably said at the end of the baptism, right? I baptize you in the name of the what? Son and Holy Spirit, right? What happens is sometimes is when we do that, it's, it's almost like this, this almost kind of becomes the amen at the end of the ritual in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? Sometimes we don't think deeply enough that not only are we baptizing you um, with those words, but we're baptizing you into those words, Does that make sense, right? It's more, when we say that in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it's more than just this kind of amen package at the end of the ritual. When we are baptizing people into the Trinity, into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are baptizing you into the very reality of the fabric of the universe, the theology of the Trinity, the nature of God. And so to understand that then, we have a dove, we have a lamb, and we have a voice. Jesus as the lamb removes our major problem, which is what? Sin, right? So the lamb, look, here John says, the lamb of of God, which takes away the sin of the world, right? Um, Bruner, Bruner noted in his commentary, I don't know if I've thought about it this way before, but Bruner noted this in his commentary. He says, Um, when you talk about sin, when we think about sin, oftentimes we think sin is just behavior, right? I, 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 um, I blew up at my wife. I flipped the guy off on the freeway. I, um, I was greedy or I was being very jealous about my neighbors, this, or I was anxious or all these kind of little behaviors, right? Um, Bruno says that sin is not just behavior, right? Because behavior can't be undone. When he talks about the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world, these behaviors cannot be undone. What Bruner defines sin as is behavior's continuing result. Behavior's continuing result that comes from the awful behavior. So here's an example. 
if you murder somebody, right? There is no way that you can go back and say, whoops, I didn't mean to do that. I, I'm really sorry about that. I shouldn't have done that. Let me go see if I can undo that because you've already done what? You've already killed the person, right? If you were to commit an act of adultery, it's not like you can say, whoops, I didn't mean to do that. Let me go see if I can take my steps back. Behavior cannot be undone. When the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, not only does he break the power of our actions, of our behaviors, but he also removes the guilt and the shame and the loss and the brokenness and the oppression and the slavery that is the result of the sin, right? If you murdered somebody and you were to carry that with you and somebody says, but Jesus wants to set you free from that, right? Being set free would be that you wouldn't have to carry that guilt and that shame and that disappointment and that anger and that hurt, right? Jesus sets us free, not just from behavior, right? But also from behavior's continuing result. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. My, the, my, my, my mom watched Dateline about that. She did. Yeah, I bet. The dove, as, this, as we kind of dove, inserts our major power, which is the spirit, right? One of the ways that Jesus' baptism works is that it transcends what I would call repentance baptism to spirit baptism, right? Sometimes people go to get baptized, and the whole thought behind baptized is they're really sorry, and they want to make things right with God, and it's a single act for forgiveness because you're conscious of your sin, Right? But not only is Jesus, you know, baptized into this kind of repentance baptism, I would say that he transcends it into what I'll call spirit baptism, in which when you're baptized, right, when the spirit comes, it's, it's continual. It's not one act, it's continual. It's life and spirit and it's concern for righteousness. Too often what happens when people get baptized, right, is they, they go here to the Jesus piece and they say, Jesus, I'm so sorry for my sin, right? but they don't go deep enough, right? They remove the sin, but there's no spirit that then fills them up. So there's still an emptiness, right? Sure, Jesus comes in and he kind of cleans out the sin and he helps remove that guilt and that shame and all those uh, destructive behaviors that we have, but they don't go deep enough to allow the spirit to, f- to fill them the way that the spirit then fills Jesus in his baptism, right? Jesus takes away our sin. He removes our sin. The Spirit inserts our major power, which is His Holy Spirit. And then the Father speaks our most important status, which is um, son or daughter. Son or daughter. Let me just read these three verses. One is in Psalm and one is in Corinthians and one's John because we need to be reminded who we really belong to. In Psalm 103, 13, the same way a loving father feels towards his children, that's but a sample of your tender feelings toward us, your beloved children who live in awe of you. Psalm 103, 13. 1 Corinthians 3, 1, 3, and 4. He is the father of tender mercy and the God of endless comfort. 
He always comes alongside us to comfort us in every suffering so that we can come alongside those who are in any painful trial. We can bring them the same comfort that God has poured out upon us. 1 John, 1, or 1 John 3, 1. Look with wonder at the depth of the Father's marvelous love that he has lavished on us. He has called us and made us his very own beloved children. So again, in this passage in the Trinity, we need to think that the Lamb is the one who removes the sin. The Spirit is the one who fills us, who inserts our major power. And then the Father speaks the voice over us, our adoption or our status as a son or daughter of God. You see how the whole Trinity, when we say I'm baptizing you into the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, I'm not just tacking on like a generic amen towards the end. This is what you're being baptized into, this very reality. Now, the second word is humility. Let's talk about humility for a second. Bruner notes that Jesus' first miracle was the miracle of humility, right? Before Jesus does any miracles, his miracle of humility. He submits himself to John. He walks into the sin-filled waters, and he identifies with you and with I, right? And here's the image that we get. We get the image in this humility piece of dove on a lamb. The Spirit of God, like a dove, descends on the lamb of God, right? Think about those two animals for a second that are chosen to represent the Spirit and Jesus. A dove and a lamb. We don't get that the eagle of the Spirit of God descended on the lion of Jesus, right? We don't get that the hawk of God descended on the bear, Jesus. We don't get that, here's my favorite one, the pterodactyl of the Spirit descended on the Tyrannosaurus Rex of Jesus. Listen to this image, dove on lamb. How humble are these two, these two animals right here? There's nothing special or powerful or majestic or great going on here. Just simple dove on lamb. Let me quote Bruner here for a second, and I'll try and read it really slowly so we can digest it. He says this, The remarkable office, the remarkable job, the remarkable vocation, the remarkable work of the Spirit is to nuance strength, to modulate power, and to deliver what is deeply needed in common and in public life, the way of gentleness. When the church grasps even a portion of the gospel's downward and dove-like message, the church will be in a stronger position than she is now under a frequently nationalistic and so inevitable militaristic spirit. Bruner says, we are given dove power. Not eagle power, not hawk power, not pterodactyl power. Dove power, right? When you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, then we are led downward into the humble service, into persons, becoming persons of doing ministry and serving in this world, right? Um, 
And let me say this too, because I want to note this. You know, next week, we're going to do this kind of fifth Sunday serve day. And, and we've been doing this since we started the church, right? We've been saying, hey, a few times a year, every time there's a fifth Sunday, we're just going to get out in the neighborhood and serve. This year, it's been radically different than what we've ever done in the past. But we've just made this part of our habit and part of our routine. Of all the spiritual disciplines, right? This one right here, service, is the most conductive to the growth of humility within us, right? We know that humility is not one of those things that you can just go pursue. You can't wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'm going to be a more humble person. I'm going to, I am going to work hard and diligently to become a more humble person, right? You can't pursue, become a humble person by trying to pursue humility, right? The way that you become a more humble person, and Richard Foster points this out in his book, The Celebration of Discipline, is you do this through indirect routes or indirect acts of routine service, right? Especially ones that you don't get credit for. That's how you become a more humble person, right? Foster says, when you, um, when you, when you begin to serve and you don't take credit for it, humility will slip upon you unawares, right? And it's when we serve, and again, especially without getting credit, because when you serve, you want everybody to know, hey, by the way, this is what I've been doing, right? When you serve and when you do it without getting credit, it builds the character of humility within us. Lastly, now that I got all these whiteboard colors, man, I want to talk about this word here, finality, right? All creation is being summed up in Jesus. All of it. Everything in Christ. And this repetition with variance theme that we've played with so much here, the repetition that we get here is we see in creation, right? We see in creation, we see that this, remember all the way back when we started the series, the spirit is hovering over the watery chaos. And you see earth being created out of that, right? This time, the spirit is hovering over the sinful water and almost humanity is being recreated, right? Not only in creation, but also the prophets. Now this whole prophet piece is like a college, a college like course on how often the prophets refer to Jesus um, and, and kind of speak. Um, the, and we know this, the prophets continually speak of this, of the coming Messiah, of the anointed one. They continually speak specifically about the spirit descending on this person, of the spirit falling or rested, resting on the anointed one. And I have a bunch of um, references here, Isaiah 63, 15, 11, 1 and 2, 42, 1, 61, 1. The prophets, again, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all the prophets continually speak about this spirit descending or resting or falling on this anointed one. But one of the interesting, um, one of the interesting uh, verses about this is Isaiah 64, 1, right? Isaiah 64, 1. And, and here's how the prophets say this. The prophet Isaiah says, God, if only you would tear open the heavenly realm and come down, how the mountains would tremble in your presence. 
And so you have Jesus in the Jordan. I'm going to put, uh, let's just do this. You have Jesus in the Jordan. Again, that side of the miraculous river crossing. And you have this prophecy that, that, man, God, would you tear open the heavens. Remember, the heavens have been closed for hundreds of years. Ever since the Israelites have been in exile, like there hasn't been any word from the Lord, right? It's just been closed, right? So you have the prophet Isaiah pleading that God would tear open the heavens. Brian, when you were reading your passage, right, then, then um, uh, Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan, um, as he was coming up out of the waters, he saw heaven being what? What was the word? Torn open, right? And the spirit descending on him like a dove, right? Now, some translations will say he saw heaven being opened, right? Mark uses this word schizio, which means to be torn, to be ripped, to be split. Let me end with this quote, because uh, the last four words of this quote is where I just want to kind of finish this up this morning. There's a guy named David Garland in in his book on the baptism of Christ. He writes this. He says, what's opened can be closed. But what is ripped, what is torn, cannot easily return to its former state. Right? Let me say that again. What is open may be closed. What is ripped, what is torn, cannot easily be returned to its former state. And then he says this. When Jesus comes out of the water, all heaven breaks loose. Isn't that a beautiful image? Right? We think about that phrase, all hell breaks loose or all hell broke loose. When Jesus comes out of the water, and I'll end with these words, right? All heaven breaks loose. And I'll put a couple exclamation points there, although I don't know if he did that in his book, right? All heaven breaks loose. So when we think about Jesus' baptism as he enters the water, we see the communal nature of it, right? Not only just horizontal as he wants to work with us and partner with us, we see the, the Trinity nature of it. We see the great humility that happens in baptism, right? This image of the dove on the lamb, And then we see the finality as creation's being summed up in Christ. The prophets are being summed up in Christ. Um, All of history is being summed up in Christ as all heaven is about to break loose in Jesus. Yeah, is that good? Let me say a word of prayer and then we can um, have a minute or two of discussion before those kids run out here. Lord, I think maybe as we've been kind of teaching and thinking through this, I'm really amazed, just such a simple act of the scope of what you did and just this simple act of walking into the waters. And for us who follow you, who are Christians, and we think about our baptism, and we think about what you've done for us and what you've accomplished, Somewhere from deep within our beings, we praise you and we worship you and we thank you and we in turn give our lives back to you. Thank you, Lord. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, the voice who speaks over us, the Son, the Lamb who takes away and removes our sin 
and the Spirit who fills us with power. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen.